So we're going to continue with our study through Mark. We are now at Mark 4, 21 through 34. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seeds upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon, upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was preaching the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without parables, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his holy word. I had never heard that song until Zach and Becca introduced it to us, but that could almost be sung every Sunday. Is that not the perfect prayer of exactly what we're wanting God to do? I mean, just I need to find a good track for my quiet times every morning and just hit play on that to get my heart and my mind of this is why we come to the Word, this is why we gather, this is why we sit at the feet of our Lord's teaching as recorded in His inspired Word. And it's good to have the chins back, I just now noticed. Welcome back. Merry Christmas. Um, after our men's study yesterday, I noticed that the prodigal son had gone missing again. And what I mean by that is the beautiful picture of Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son had been displaced by a picture of the baby Jesus, which is appropriate for this season. But even without being able to go out and looking at the image, when I say the words, the prodigal son, you know the story. You know about the selfish boy who squandered his inheritance sinfully. And when he came to his senses and returned home, he was eagerly embraced by the father who didn't just simply restore him as a servant, but as a son. And just the mere words, prodigal son, brings all that to our minds in an instant. Likewise, if I say the Good Samaritan, those two words are enough to bring the mind of someone that was on the road to Jericho when he was set upon by bandits and left abandoned on the road and he was passed by the Levite and the priest and then the Samaritan came and cared for him. Or the wheat and the tares or the barren fig tree or the rich man and Lazarus. Two words of a title immediately bring to mind the whole story that we can still remember today. And that's the power of the parables of Christ to communicate truths in such a vivid and a memorable and a powerful and enduring way. 
Now, if you remember from your Sunday school class, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Um, when you go to seminary, they make you learn a more technical definition. <laughs> Not nearly as much fun, Eileen, but a parable is a vivid comparison drawn from nature or an engaging story taken from common life that conveys a spiritual lesson in an intriguing way to make us ponder its meaning and replace our own assumptions with Jesus' instruction. That's a mouthful, I won't repeat it, but you get the sense of it. And even though the parables weren't unique to Jesus, he's clearly the master of this teaching method. And Mark gathers a number of his parables together in chapter 4, beginning with the parable of the sower and the seed that we saw last week. And now at this section of Mark 4, he's going to give us First of all, two parables about heeding Jesus' teaching of how to respond to the parables when we hear them. Then two parables about God's kingdom and how it is growing and expanding. And then four comments concerning Jesus' parables that will then conclude Jesus' teaching by the sea from the boat before he crosses the sea, which will be our message next week. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 where we will continue to consider the parables of our Lord Jesus. He begins in verse 21. A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, he starts with two rhetorical questions that have an obvious answer. If it's dark and you get a lamp, and again, don't think uh, the big lamp stand with the plug sticking out of it, but a small clay vessel that you would have put some oil in it and a wick, and in a dark place, you would have set it on a high spot to give light to the entire room. The whole reason for getting a lamp out in the first place is it's dark and you need light, and it'd be foolish to obscure that light. Uh, this last week, my wife and my aunt were uh, recovering some chairs, and my wife asked me for a flashlight to be able to find some screws. So being the dutiful husband, I hopped up, ran to the closet, grabbed the flashlight, brought her to her. But if I then put it under a bowl or shoved it under the couch, she wouldn't have been as much puzzled as displeased because the whole reason she asked for a flashlight was to be able to see what she was looking for. And likewise, the whole reason we bring out a light is because it's dark and we need illumination. And what Jesus is saying is, He is the light of the world. And the whole reason that God has sent Him into the world is because there were hidden things that need revealed, there were secret things that need explained, and the reason that He didn't just remain an obscure carpenter in Nazareth the reason that he has this itinerant ministry, the reason he's going out to the crowds and speaking publicly is God has a revelation that people need to hear. That there is good news that was anticipated in the Old Testament that now needs to be clarified. That there were prophecies of a coming Messiah that were given and added layer upon layer but didn't become very specific until they became personalized in Jesus Christ. And people who had grown up under the law to teach them that they couldn't obey the law, that they needed to be saved by grace through faith, now needed one to come and to preach that message to them clearly and repeatedly and vividly. And ultimately we know that God is going to set the lamp of Christ on the lampstand of the cross. And it's going to give the glorious light of God's grace into darkened heart around the globe, right? 
So Jesus, the reason he's teaching parables, the reason that he's come, the reason that he's preaching is God is trying to tell us something that we need to hear, which gives us the exhortation, you who have ears, hear. God has given us two ears so that we would listen. I had a friend who got a job at the Denton State School training new employees. And there was this large gymnasium-like area that they used for storage, and they would set up chairs, and he would teach the new employees how to be respectful of the clients, how to follow all the policies, how to handle crises, and important matters for them to perform their jobs. And on one particular day, this person, who wasn't paying attention anyway, got up from his seat, went to the back wall, pulled down a mattress, and laid down full on it and closed his eyes. It was the most glaring, I mean, all of us have had taught where people weren't paying attention, they were on their phone, they were doodling or something, but probably none of us have had someone actually go down, grab a mattress, and take a nap in the midst of his teaching. But that's what this brother did. And now he's not going to be able to perform his job. He's not going to be able to care for his patients. He's not going to be able to tend to his clients because having ears, he did not hear. Uh, or I remember when my dad was a traveling salesman in the Midwest selling farm buildings, and he got one of the first CB radios. Some of you all know what that is. I see some nods, some laughs. For those of you who don't, that is a citizen band radio before there were cell phones, and you got to talk to other truckers or cars that had these within a certain range, and you got to sign off with cute things like 10-4, good buddy. And dad was showing off his CB radio and trying to get one of the truckers to talk to him, and no one was coming on. And finally, dad clicks on and goes, what's the matter? You got peanut butter in your ears? And I still remember that. I was probably eight years old. I remember dad asking the truckers if they had peanut butter in their ears. But the whole thing is, if you got a radio, use it. Talk to me. Listen to me. And Jesus is saying, God is trying to speak to us. He has important things to reveal to us. There are eternal mysteries, literally, that we need unraveling. And so as we listen to these stories, they're not just memorable stories. They call for us to respond by taking very careful heed to what it is that we're hearing. It's not enough to go to the doctor if you don't listen to his advice. It does no good to go to school if you forget it as soon as you take the test. You have to heed. Don't just hear, but heed, said Jesus, because those who do will be greatly blessed and those who refuse will suffer greatly which is the point of his next parable. Look in verse 24. Take care what you listen to, because by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Jesus goes from the household image of a lamp to the marketing image of a measure where you would have scales and you would put a certain amount of one product here and then you would need to balance it with another product or with coinage. And this idea of the attention that you give to Christ will be balanced by the blessing you receive or the negligence that you have will also cost you greatly because you have nothing counterbalancing it. And so be very careful to what you listen to. Now, this is just good advice in general. And so dads say, listen to your mama. Then you send your kids to school, listen to your teachers. Then you tell your kids, listen to your coach. And so we're always telling people, be careful how you listen, be careful who you listen to. Don't listen to strangers. 
don't listen to this. And that's just good counsel in general. Uh, I remember a woman talking to me once. She had asked me to do her funeral and was recounting the story of her life. And she said, when I was a teenage girl and discovered boys, I remember my grandmother pulling me aside and said, if you keep going out late night with those boys, the boogeyman is going to come and get you. And then she said, and boy, was grandma right. I, I still get chills hearing that when she said, boy, was grandma right. And I should have listened, but I didn't. I listened to my friends. I listened to the boys. I listened to my flesh. I didn't listen to grandma and it cost me. But there's something more specific going on here. This isn't just general counsel like in Psalm 1, don't take counsel of the wicked. Or Proverbs mind, there's wisdom and there's the foolish woman speaking at us like the two angels you see in the cartoons and we should listen to wisdom. That's true, but there's something more specific going on here. What Jesus came to preach was the kingdom of God. That the reign of God in righteousness and peace had arrived because the king had arrived. That the rule of God on earth was coming when the king returns. And therefore, if you remember that first gospel message when we were in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus was going forth saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand, and therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. There's two things you need to know. The time is fulfilled. Everything that God had been anticipating, it's here. We're waiting no longer. The Messiah has arrived. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And you need to enter into that kingdom by swearing allegiance to that king. And to do that, you need to do two things. You need to repent of your sin. You need to acknowledge that I've not obeyed God very well. And I have worshipped other gods. And I have not been a perfect person. But I'm ready to acknowledge that. I'm ready to admit that. I'm ready to confess that. And then to believe in the good news that God made all that okay through Jesus Christ. That the whole meaning of Christmas is God becoming a human being so that taking on our nature, he could live a perfect life, achieve the perfect requirements of the law, and be the perfect righteousness that God requires for entrance into heaven. And that as our substitute, he could die on the cross as the penalty for our sin so that anyone who would ask him to save them, he will. All of Christ's righteousness transferred to us. All of our sin transferred to Christ so that on the cross we could be reconciled to God and we don't have to do anything to earn that, merit that, warrant that, achieve that. We just have to receive that. And to say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you save me? Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we do, when we have that, so much more is added to us right? That then we receive a new nature. Then we receive the Holy Spirit who indwells us and conforms us to the image of Christ. Then we are sealed by that Spirit for salvation. Then we receive a new family in the body of Christ. Then we receive eyes to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear the Word of God spoken in His Word. Then we have the hope of heaven. Then we will have a new earth someday. Then we have a resurrection to anticipate in a body that will never get sick or age or decline. All of those things are added to us. Peace, joy, hope, life, regeneration, transformation, salvation. When you have this one thing, when you receive the gospel. If we refuse it, if we reject it, then we lose everything else as well. Because everything else is going to fade away. Our bodies decline. 
Uh, I'm listening to a book by now by a gentleman named Bill Bryson called The Body, um, and a Guide for Inhabitants. And it's just this fascinating look at the miracle of our body. And I'm on the chapter on skin, which sounds a lot more fascinating than it may seem. And one of the things that he talks about is all of our skin that we can touch and see has already died, is all ready to flake off into dust that will vacuum up or wipe off. That we carry about ourselves quite literally a deadness and a reminder that we're not immortal. That every time there's dust, every time there's flakes, every time there's hair falling out, that's a reminder of our mortality that we're not going to live forever. And this world is going to go away. And all of our achievements and all of our possessions are going to be forgotten and go to somebody else. And if we neglect the gospel, we lose everything. That if for the sake of Jesus you're willing to forsake the world, you get the world to come and the best of this world also. If you reject Jesus, then you lose this world and you lose the world to come. It's a terrible deal. It's a tragedy. Um, David and I had a roommate in college who got married, Rusty. And at Rusty's wedding, Rusty was studying petroleum, petroleum engineering. And the pastor who did the ceremony held up the ring as the token of what they were about to covenant. And he said, you know, Cheryl, this ring that Rusty's about to put on your finger is not only a sign of his fidelity, but that you are entering into possession of all that he owns and all that he will ever possess. And Cheryl turned and looked at the audience. They gave a big wink and a big smile. <laughs> I got the petroleum engineer. It's all mine. It's all mine. But it's all hers only if she takes Rusty as her husband. If you spurn the husband, if you walk away from the altar, then you lose the husband and you lose all of the husband's possessions. God has offered us to be the bride of his son. The gospel is a proposal where the father says, will you have my son as your lawful wedded husband? And we either receive that or we reject that. If we receive Christ, then all his inheritance is ours also. We become co-inheritors with Christ. But if we reject him, then we lose everything as well in this life and the world to come. Jesus says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So the parable of the lamp is the light has been given to reveal. You have ears, now listen, take heed. And the parable of the measure is if you accept the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, then you will receive so much more. But if you reject it, you end up losing everything else. So please receive the gospel no matter what it may cost you now. The missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, said in his journals, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's not a bad trade. <laughs> That's not a bad deal. And so Jesus says, receive the gospel and receive everything else.
Then he transitions to two parables about God's kingdom that he had come to preach. He says in verse 26, And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now the kingdom of God is the rule of God, the righteous reign that is anticipated in the coming of Christ, inaugurated, and then consummated when Christ returns. And it begins with this seed of a gospel presentation, of a gospel proclamation, of Jesus on the seashore, or the apostles on a preaching tour, or their disciples sharing the gospel, or us talking to a family member at Christmas about the good news of God opening up His kingdom to any who will receive His Son. And once that seed is cast, it goes into the dark, and now miraculous, mysterious things happen that have nothing to do with us. Look at some of the ways he describes it. We cast out the seed, we go to bed at night, we get up, and the seed sprouts and grows how he does not know. That it's mysterious how the gospel works. That someone can hear a song, hear a message, read a tract, read a verse on a building at the University of Texas that says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And then this friend of mine who was there as an atheist at a physics conference went across the street to the co-op bought a Bible, read the verse, came to Christ, and now he's a pastor in Texas. How does that happen? God only knows. Because the soil produces the crop by itself. Once we put that seed in the earth, we're done on what we can contribute to that process. Because now it's by the miracle of God that with the soil and the moisture and the right temperature, that it begins to germinate and the seed shell opens up and cracks and the roots begins to emerge and to go into the surrounding soil to anchor and to begin to draw in moisture and nutrients. And then it begins to grow and now we see plant synthesis occurring and it emerges from and now it hits the light and photosynthesis occur and starches turn into sugars and now this miracle of growth occurs independently of us because we can't argue someone into the kingdom. We can't be persuasive enough, uh, compelling enough to lead someone to Christ. God does that. It's a miracle. It's independent of us, praise God. It's progressive. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. It's inexorable that what starts is going to be completed, that this gospel that started with Christ will indeed come to culmination in a harvest. When God sends the Son again and the Son sends His angels and all the nations are gathered before Him and He separates the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, the good fish from the dead, and there will be the final separation when the final harvest occurs. And all of this is something that God does, which is so relieving to us that that pressure isn't on us that if I were somehow more educated or more articulate or my apologetics were better, that I could just persuade this person to Christ, God does that in wondrous ways. Uh, the most powerful illustration of this in my life was when I was on a summer mission trip in Hawaii doing beach evangelism. And we would do a goofy skit, play songs, crowds would draw, and then we would share the gospel. And on one particular evening, there were a group of girls from Japan there on vacation. And their English was very bad, but it was much better than my Japanese. And so I tried to draw the bridge illustration in the sand that 
Over here is God who is holy and perfect and just. And over here is human beings that are sinful and unrighteous and imperfect. And we're separated by this big chasm that we can't cross. And so God sent His Son that through the cross builds a bridge from earth to heaven for sinners. And it wasn't great. I was a new believer. They weren't understanding me and I wasn't doing a good job with it. And I left just frustrated thinking that was a waste of their time. And then a few weeks later, I was approached on the beach, one of our evangelistic outreaches, by a couple of Japanese girls that said, are you the person telling people about Jesus? Because some friends of ours were here a couple weeks ago, and someone told them about the gospel, and they accepted Christ, and they told us to come look for him. Now, I can't explain that. I didn't do that. It wasn't like, dude, I, <laughs> this kind of sand cross thing, I got this down. I can build a ministry around this. Bridge of Sand Ministry or something, it had nothing to do with me. I just felt compelled to try to share. God took it somehow, opened up their hearts to receive it. They not only received it, they shared it, sent others to find it. They somehow found me on Waikiki Beach on a night, and I got to share the gospel with them more fully. It's God. God does that. We just have to be faithful to share because the kingdom spreads in wondrous, mysterious, independent, inexorable ways that will come to completion when Christ comes again. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we as a church are never going to give in to gimmicks to try to grow. Uh, we're not going to try to catch the latest craze or to jump on the latest fad. Uh, you're never going to see giveaways or disco nights. You're never going to see me in skinny jeans and new tats. And none of that's going to happen because we're just going to trust what the church has always done. We will continually devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer so that we grow in our love of God, of one another, and of our neighbors. And that's the only plan we got. You know, Papa Mel and all the churches that he planted, he just had two tools. He just had two sticks. Make disciples by equipping the saints to the work of the ministry. Mel just got a tool for each hand. Make disciples to equip the saints who make disciples who equip the saints who make disciples who equip the saints. And that's all, that's all it is. It's not cutesy tricks and gimmicks. Uh, I received a flyer in the mail for a new church opening and they were giving away a large screen TV if you'd come to the grand opening. We're not doing that. There's no raffles and rallies. We're just going to trust what God has always done. We will faithfully preach the gospel. We will faithfully live it out. We will faithfully share it. And then we will trust God to do His work in His timing. And it takes all the pressure off us. We just have to share. We just have to teach. Look at this next kingdom, our next kingdom parable. He was saying to them, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The wonder of the kingdom of God isn't just the way that it expands mysteriously, but the way it expands exponentially, dramatically, disproportionately. Uh, when my daughter went on a mission trip to Trinidad and Tobago, she was given by Tracy Jacobson, who used to work with Vision Ministry, this little vial with a mustard seed in it. And so she just wore, and you couldn't even see the seed because a mustard seed is as small as a pepper flake, even smaller. Now, some have quibbled 
that uh, there are actually smaller seeds out there. But Jesus isn't giving a botanical lecture. He's making a point using an analogy that was common among rabbis. Among us, the mustard seed's the smallest, and it grows into this huge height. Um, I think of Rachel and her sunflowers. My wife started doing a garden. Rachel wanted to grow sunflowers, so we planted a sunflower seed, a few of them out there. Sunflowers grow freakishly big. I mean, these things were like eight or nine feet. My daughter, because, you know, here she's putting it in, and she's just smaller than her finger, and then they grew, and it's two or three times her height. And it was this wonderful illustration of exactly what he's talking about. Or, uh, those of you who came out with the lawn ministry yesterday, picked up a few thousand of these things, <laughs> of these acorns, that you put one of these in the ground, and in God's wondrous ways, these can grow into an oak 40, 60, 80 feet tall that then produce thousands of these that then can raise other oaks. And it's so disproportionate. It's miraculous what God does. Just like at this time when Jesus is first giving this message, what does the kingdom of God look like? Well, you got a carpenter from Nazareth who's become an itinerant evangelist that already has raised the ire of the most powerful forces in Israel. And then you got four ex-fishermen. You got a tax collector that people are still pretty unsure of. And you got a handful of other guys that are newbies to the business. And that's the kingdom. And it doesn't look that impressive. And it gets even worse two years later when they're all scattered and it's just the king on a cross dying. And in a grave, dark. And looks like the king is dead. But the king rises, calls back the 12, and then they become 120 in the upper room, and then they become 3120. And they begin to grow, and it expands, and it expands. And by 250 AD, it's millions of people. By 350 AD, it's estimated that it's half of the Roman Empire. Today, there are billions of Christians. Uh, there's a fascinating book called The Next Christendom, written by an author named Philip Jenkins, now at uh, Baylor University. And he talks about where Christianity is going that we as Americans are largely unaware of. Let me read you just some of his findings. By 2025, there will be an estimated 2.6 billion Christians. And here's the order in which they will be represented. Of that number, 695 million will live in Africa there will be more Christians in Africa than on any other continent. Next will be Latin America, 610 million. After that, Europe, 547 million. Then 480 million in Asia. This means that in the next six years, Africa and Latin America will account for half of all the Christians on the planet. And by 2050, only one in five Christians in the world will be Caucasian. Christendom is shifting. It's moving in ways that we're unaware of. There are more Christians gathered in the Chinese-speaking countries on a Sunday than in the English-speaking American world. They're in underground churches. They're in small groups. They may be singing silently, Zach, but they're there, and they're multiplying because God isn't just doing a mysterious, inexorable work. It's an exponentially dramatic, disproportionate work. And even as we get discouraged in America with the way that our country is going and the way that the hostility with Christianity is growing and will grow, in other countries, it's thriving, it's multiplying, it's, it's taking new forms and expressions. And God will not be thwarted because of a change of political parties. 
God will not be thwarted by a Congress or an act of law. God will not be thwarted by all the opposition of the communist things. God can't be thwarted. And his work is growing in dramatic, exponential, wondrous, miraculous ways. So take heart. And then Jesus concludes with four comments concerning the parables. Actually, Mark commenting on the parabolic teaching of Jesus. With many such parables, he was speaking. This is a bookend to the second verse in Mark chapter 4 that says he was teaching them many things in parables. So this is just kind of a nice inclusio. And Jesus' audiences were usually mixed. So when he went out, he had his faithful followers, and then he had the curious, then he had the interested but the non-committed, but he also had those that were already hardened in opposition against him. And so by teaching in parables, he's able to feed those who are willing to receive, but also to not give away everything to those that are hostile. And Jesus was wise. And he calls us to be wise. That he instructed and taught in such a way that was able to accommodate a mixed audience like we need to learn how to do. Because today, if you stand up and speak anywhere, especially with all the recording that's happening and the distribution, there's going to be a mixed reception. And Christ is a good model of somehow learning to communicate the message faithfully, but in a way that those who are willing to hear can hear, and those who are hardened and hateful won't rise up in immediate opposition. Then he says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them. Uh, that's Bible language for the gospel. He wasn't just telling stories. This wasn't just an early um, Paul Harvey telling the rest of the story. He wasn't just a great illustrator. He had one main message, which was the good news of the kingdom, that the king had come and would let you into his kingdom if you would swear your allegiance to him. And all the different parables, more than 40, had one basic thrust because he had one basic message. And that's true for us as well. That we're going to hear the full testimony of God, but ultimately it's about one person, Jesus. Um, and what he's done for us. And so we're going to keep giving that one gospel and it won't be silenced and it won't be hidden and we're not ashamed of it and it's not going to be altered. But Christ taught many audiences in many ways with many parables, but there was one main message. God is perfect, you are not, but He loves you. And He will forgive you and embrace you if you accept His Son. It's not that hard, but it is that critical. Eternity rides on it. Then it says that He taught them so far as they were able to hear it, that He accommodated His audience. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus didn't say, go and feed my giraffes. He said, go and feed my sheep. It does no good for me to get up here and quote Greek and Hebrew and impress you if I befuddle you. And so as we teach, Christ would have us accommodate ourselves to our audience so that they can understand it. So what's happening in the Sunday school rooms is the same message that's happening up here just taught at an appropriate level. And what may be happening with our teens is what's happening with our young adults just at an appropriate level. But it's the same message, but we're always thinking, how can I tailor it and customize it to this person so that they will understand it and so they will receive it. Um, Calvin used the analogy of when you talk to a babe, you lisp and use baby language. I mean, first it's just sounds, but then even in explaining things, we bend down and speak in a lower voice using simple words so that they can understand. And that's what God does for us in the Bible, is He accommodates us 
so that we will learn to accommodate others. And then finally, he says, he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Now, the them are the crowds, the multitudes. And he was always preaching and teaching to them. But then he would explain to his disciples because there's insiders and there's outsiders. There are those that are in the family who are willing to do God's will and those that aren't. There are those who are his disciples and those who refuse to be his disciples. There are those who receive him and those who reject him. There are those who embrace him and those who exclude him. There are those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And the gospel and the Bible and the things of God only make sense once you're inside. Uh, probably many of us did premarital counseling, and that was helpful in some ways, but there's no way to understand and appreciate marriage until you're married. And when you leave the altar and the wedding becomes a marriage, then you begin to really learn, what have I done? And th there's just no way to entirely prepare someone until you're there. Uh, likewise, my wife and I, when she was pregnant, we took a positive parenting class, all of which was helpful, but there's no way to explain parenting and both its joys and delights and also its challenges and its pains until you're a parent. you got to be in it before you understand it. And the things of God can only be understood by the children of God because only they have the Spirit of God that open their minds to the things of God that are spiritually appraised. And so if you're coming to church and you're hearing things and they're not making sense, it's possible I'm doing a poor job explaining it and you can come rebuke me and I want to do better. But the reality is that until you are in Christ, they won't make sense to you. Uh, it won't make sense why people would begin to wind down their businesses and change their careers to spend more time doing ministry. It won't make sense why we would voluntarily give up our money to aid organizations and other people. It won't make sense why we spend so much of our time with one another and enjoying the fellowship of the saints until you're part of the family. And then you realize the desire and the delight and the compulsion and the joy. But while you're outside, it's going to be a bit odd. It's going to be a bit strange. It's just the nature of it. But if that does describe you, all you have to do to become an insider and to enjoy all this is even today to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. And he will. And then it will be like the scales falling off your eyes. Now, have, you, have you seen these videos of these children who are deaf and then they do a procedure and they can hear? There's one recently of a young babe. Did y'all see this? I see some nods. Who hears her mother's voice. I mean, yeah. And it's like, I, I didn't know that that existed. That that sense was there. That this person was communicating in this way. And everything will begin to fall in place. Once you do it. And for those of us who are on the inside, we still need to be careful how we hear. That it's possible to come to church Sunday after Sunday and not really listen. It's possible to read your Bible day after day and just check a box. And so we have to be mindful that we're actually paying attention, that we're actually understanding, that we're actually applying, that we're actually growing. And then more and more will be given to us. And we enter into the joy of the Christian life that God intends for us. And until that time, we will keep sowing that seed, hopefully, knowing that God will work mysteriously and inexorably to bring it to completion. 
And we will keep sharing the word and teaching the Bible because we know that God is going to bring a disproportionate fruit from it. And even when it looks like the kids are just playing around and don't get it, they're often listening and seeds are being planted in young soil and young hearts. That There's no telling how that's going to grow and blossom and bloom. So we will just keep attending to the teaching of Christ. Hearing Him, listening to Him, obeying Him, telling others about Him until the beautiful day when the last crop is grown and the harvest is done and the King returns and we enter into the joy of His fellowship forever and forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank You for Christ being such a good teacher and for communicating in parables that the mere mention of a title can bring images and stories and principles and applications to mind. And Lord, we confess that oftentimes we're not mindful, that oftentimes we're not really paying attention, that oftentimes we are distracted or stubborn. And so would you open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to continually re receive what you have revealed, to be increasingly transformed into the beautiful likeness of your perfect Son. And Father, would we, knowing that the gospel work does not rely on us, be more emboldened to just simply cast a bunch of seeds, to talk more freely of our Lord, to share more eagerly of our Savior, to talk about the testimony of the transformation that the gospel has wrought in our lives more immediately, more promptly, more persistently. Father, would this just become natural? Because how could we talk of anything else? And then let us be encouraged to see your wondrous work and to watch this thing grow. And we pray specifically that we would be faithful to do that in the Dinya neighborhood and that we would see in this coming year people come to Christ, people come to joy this family of Christ and then begin to bear their own acorns and to begin to share the gospel. And would you do a mighty transforming work in our community, we ask in your son's name. Amen.